So in a sense, the sentiment is probably in the right place. What you do with that sentiment, obviously, is not gloat and not say I told you so. And it takes a very highly developed person to be able to use that as an opportunity, a learning opportunity, for example, rather than a kind of told you so opportunity. Right, good. Hello, Dave here. I'm back. Sorry, it's been a while. Here I am. This is Your Brain on Climate. We're looking at human brains versus the climate crisis. And this week, this month, sorry, um, we're going to be looking at schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, a word so good we nicked it from German. That delightful, slightly grubby feeling when someone or something you dislike falls flat on their or its face and you rub your little hands in glee. You know that feeling. And I've often wondered, what's going on there? Why does our brain do that? Is it a good thing? Is it doing anything for me? Or is it a bad thing? Is it something I should be ashamed of? And then I got to thinking, well, so much of what I think about climate change, if I'm honest with myself, involves someone somewhere hopefully falling on their face, like a Donald Trump or an oil company. And I realise that quite a lot of my own kind of engine for doing something is, you know, wanting someone to get their just desserts. So I thought, hmm, better talk to someone about that. Better talk to a psychotherapist. And the psychotherapist in question is a very entertaining chap called Dr. Aaron Balick. Now, Dr. Aaron Balick what I spoke to is a psychotherapist, yes, but also an academic and an author, a boss of things, and he applies psychology to everyday things. So he's like properly bang on what I'm trying to do here. And we talked all about schadenfreude, how it links to theories of the ego, what it does for us, how it links to shame. Is it a negative thing? And how, if you're using it in any way to structure your thinking about climate change, you can do that in a more or less helpful way. This is a somewhat rambling chat because it turns out the schadenfreude is so intimately connected to other things. And I was learning so much so fast that we kind of went all over the place. We went into Freudian theory. We went into hypocrisy. We went into social media at the very end there. To me, that only makes it more interesting. Um, Aaron was game for that kind of chat. So I hope you enjoy it. As always, this noise denotes wisdom. If you hear this, it means someone somewhere, probably Aaron, has said something that you might want to find out more about. Go and check in the show notes and I'll put a link for more information. Right, good, let's get on with it. And I started by bringing up with Aaron an example of imagined schadenfreude that I just felt that very morning that directly stems from me being an old tired git. Your brain on climate. So I was just out for a run, right? And I am an increasingly old and pathetic man. And I was out for my run and I was labouring up a hill and someone about 20 years younger than me overtook me and shot up the hill. And I wanted them to fall on their face. I wanted them to fall into a pothole and fall into their face. And I know that's bad, but I did it, right? So that 
is schadenfreude, or at least the idea of schadenfreude, right? Yes, like it's basically wanting bad things to happen to people or being happy when they do, more specifically. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the the direct translation of schadenfreude from its German is uh, joy damage or joy harm, which is literally <laughs> the experience of joy that we get out of damage to somebody else. I like that. So what is it? What's going on in our brains when we have some joy harm going on? Well, what you described just there, I would say, welcome to the wonderful world of the ego defense. So mm. in psychology, the ego, uh, which is universally problematic, but also really important. So we're not going to denigrate it, you know, the, the whole time. Basically, the ego is always setting itself up to protect itself in a whole variety of different ways and to feel okay about itself. So when this younger guy is coming up behind you on the hill and your ego is feeling a little bit vulnerable because you're not as young as you used to be, you're not as fast as this guy used to be, in order right. to protect itself, it creates a fantasy of the harm that happens to the other so that the ego can feel the joy of, you know, being, it's not, it's not so much being better than in that particular instance, but it, it protects you from your own shame of uh, social comparison in that instance. So, Tell me a bit about, I don't think we've really gone much Freud on this podcast so far. And ego is the Freudian thing, right? Tell me a bit about, give me a proper cretin's guide to the ego. Great. Well, I love, I love that you mentioned Freud because he's, he's very much unappreciated and underappreciated these days, but he did come up with some of these really important terms that we still, well, he didn't come up with the term ego, but he described it in a way that's still really useful today. So the very short, accessible answer is that Freud understood our mind as being made up of these three different components, the id, the ego, and the superego. Although he didn't use complicated language in German, he used ich, über ich, and uh, s, which is just it, I, and over I, right? And the ego, yeah, so for Freud, it's just like joy damage, right? So for Freud, it's very simple. We don't have these crazy Latin words. It's just the the ego is the I. So what does the I do? In the Freudian sense, it negotiates between the it or the id and the superego. So it negotiates between your conscience and your basic desires so that you can be a civilized human being in the world. I probably already went too far, but basically what the ego does is it sits between the external world and the internal world and mediates that experience, right? So your id might want to wanted to have tripped that guy as he was running up the hill because of the aggressive Bad impulse. It. Right? Bad it. <laughs> yes. So the it is always like the basic impulse, right? And then the superego says, mate, if you trip that guy, he's going to get up and hit you or, you know, get you arrested. So the ego says, well, the best solution to this problem right now is to imagine this guy falling down a hole and I can feel, feel a little bit better that way. So the ego is like all the stuff you kind of, all of these neuroses and stuff that you wrap yourself in to cope with the fact that like the world doesn't work the way that your internal mechanisms would like it to. It's something the ego does to manage the very difficult task of mediating between one's inner world and outer world. So for Freud, back in the Victorian times, the id wanted sex all the time. It's Victorian time, so everybody's ashamed about sex and they're not talking about it. Women are covering their ankles. So rather than getting sex, you develop a symptom in lieu of the sex. This is the basic old-fashioned Freudian model. So you develop a neurosis. You worry about your health or you uh, have a... I don't know. You imagine some kind of crazy thing has happened that isn't happening because you're funneling that ego energy into a symptom rather than resolving it in some important way. This all sounds unhealthy, 
to me. Sounds like <laughs> so when you, when you were talking about me wanting to knock over this guy, who was also much more beautiful than me as well. I mean, I just right. <laughs> I, wa- I wanted every bad thing to happen to him, pretty much. And you used shame. You said it was like mm-hmm. my, my shame at being older. Thanks for that. And uh, it all sounds like it's all very sort of negative. Is is Schadenfreude an inherently kind of negative thing or does this, is the ego always wrapping us in these negative emotions i'm trying to sort of tease these two things out so maybe we should talk about yeah the first yeah i mean i struggle with negative because it's like because it's natural right so it's not the best thing in the world to experience envy or shame or aggression but to imagine that as thinking animals we wouldn't have those experiences uh, it's just part of life it becomes negative again in that freudian sense when you're so there you're so blocked around whatever the natural urge is that it turns into something pernicious mm. right so um a, a really good example is like a, like an eating disorder or something like that so you turn one kind of anxiety into an eating disorder you start starving yourself or binging then there's a definite negative effect of the symptom but the original feeling isn't negative it's just a natural human emotion that one has that needs to be processed in a particular way Right. Okay. So there's no such thing as a inherently bad kind of response to something. It's just going to how it manifests in the world. Would that be fair? Depends. It depends what you mean by response. I would say I think that um, there's no inherently bad feeling because feelings arise independently, right? You just have a feeling. It's th- th- if there's a behavior attached to that feeling then that might be a negative thing. So if you if you notice envy arising and you trip the guy, that's a negative behavior based on a natural feeling of, of envy, right? I wouldn't say the envy is wrong, but the tripping the guy is wrong. Your solution of imagining something is actually quite a good, clever solution that protects your ego without causing any particular damage to anybody else. That's a good thing. Okay, so imagine he had fallen into a pothole and got eaten by a shark um, that was living in this pothole. I would have felt joy harm. I would have felt schadenfreude, right? Um, And do we know anything specifically? Is is schadenfreude a thing or is it just an expression of that ego? Is is it a thing we can go, that is a specific kind of psychological effect going on? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't consider it sort of like one of the main emotions in a sense, but you could say that it is kind of like a a compilation of things that you might expect would happen. So I would say in that in that example, it is an expectable result of um, envy or jealousy in that in that moment. Right, so I've been looking into it a bit in my fairly newbie kind of way, and I found out that there are, and tell me this is wrong, Mm. because that's like your job, that there are three different types of schadenfreude, generally. Um, So the one where I want this geezer to get eaten by a shark and fall down a hole, in this case, it's all about kind of my ego, right? Like, I this this guy makes me feel something, and if he falls down a hole, that means that I am better than him, and so I don't need to worry, right? A kind of individual social comparison thing. So that's one type that's of genre, yeah. yeah? Mm-hmm. Then we got um, groupy 
type thing. So this might be when, uh, what's a good example? Someone I don't, someone from a group I don't like, like a QPR supporter, for example, <laughs> in football parlance, uh, that, you know, uh, gets upset because their team gets relegated or something like that. And that makes me happy because my group is better than their group. Talk to me a bit more about that one. Yeah. So it still all boils down to ego and, and the, the way you cut up these pies is going to be different upon the opinions of the people cutting up the pies, right? So I'm not a schadenfreude researcher. I don't know if there are, but there might be some schadenfreude researchers who are very particular about these these divisions. Oh, I bet there is. I bet, I bet there's, I bet, yes, yeah, some of the debates always, of schadenfreude always, always. get very, I'm sure they do, yeah. Right. But they would probably agree that um, if there's something that is uh, seeking a group identity, it's an individual ego seeking a group identity because groups are formed of all sorts of individual egos grouping together around their football team or their political persuasion or whatever it is. So it's a group identity that your ego adheres to. And basically that um, schadenfreude experience just jumps a level to a group experience of schadenfreude rather than an individual one. It's not particularly, you know, if, if it's two teams running against each other, you can imagine the same sort of thing rolling out just turns into in-group and out-group, really. It's like a collective group ego on the one hand, right? So the whole group identifies itself in opposition to the other group. That's the very way in which it collects its identity, that it's not the other thing. So when the harmful thing happens to the other side, the first side gets to say, yay. There is another way of looking at it too, which comes from evolutionary psychology, which really gets down to kind of our animal brains, whereby in-groups are about social acceptance, which back in the old days was a life-or-death situation. So you imagine hunter-gatherer groupings. Mm -hmm. If you fall out with that grouping and you're excommunicated from the tribe, you could starve to death, you can lose your group protection. You know, that's why that's where shame arises from. That's why we still have these experiences on social media, for example. So that's a slightly different level of um, kind of an evolutionarily designed need for an in-group to be confirmed, right? And an out-group to exist, because again, that that definition is who's inside and who's outside. And that's really, that stuff, as you say, is really kind of hardwired into us, right? The, the idea that there are groups, there are tribes, and you are part of it. I did a good episode about conflict with uh, Ian Leslie a few episodes back. We talked quite a lot about that sort of stuff. And so it does kind mm -hmm. of make sense to me that uh, a large part of the schadenfreude that people see, for example, uh, if Boris Johnson, <laughs> just to pick a name at random, <laughs> has, is doing something which people are saying, haha, there we are, told you he was a wrong one. That's often because he was in a group that is not our group and represents that group. Absolutely. That's, yeah, yeah, okay. And that's a very deep thing in Yeah, in our it's profound. Yeah. It's not necessarily rational, which is interesting, but it totally happens. Right. And third type of Schadenfreude, and again, I'm sure the Schadenfreude community are writing me letters at the moment, is <laughs> something that seems a bit different, but that's the idea of like when someone has done something unjust has done a crime and has been getting away with it and then gets caught and then gets rumbled there is that feeling that we have of kind of release of happiness of, of justice being served and of pleasure in some sense at them being um banged to rights and that seems a distinct thing from what group they're in that's about a kind of individual that we don't know have no connection to but getting their uppers is that a distinct thing 
So, I mean, I like to call this one cosmic justice. So, oh, yeah. this, this cosmic justice is handed nice. down, right, from on I'm just, just going to play the cosmic justice music. Hang on. <laughs> right. Or do the echo. Cosmic justice, justice, justice. Yes. But I hate to be reductive, but I would oh. still, and maybe this is my Freudian background, but I still bring it back to ego in the sense that you hope, the ego hopes for cosmic justice in the world because it cannot bear, like, just unfairness. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's just like, if people get away with shit, am I allowed, are we allowed to use expletives on your Oh, program? you can explain what you yeah. like. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> if people are allowed to get away with shit, that's actually very frightening at, at the base of the ego level as well. So one hopes that there is justice. So one example of schadenfreude, in a sense, is you get this kind of individual aha. Thematically, it's justice related. So it's like, that's a really good example. Another really good example is kind of like the homophobic pre preacher who's like found with a rent boy or something like that. Mm. And everybody's like, you know, it happened. Um, and that's because there's a satisfaction in that the world came right in the end there. So there's a, like a kind of larger sophisticated justice meaning to it. But at bottom, it's still like, thank goodness there's some kind of justice in the world because if there isn't, that's really threatening to me and it's threatening to humankind. But there isn't, but there is, but the world is just, isn't the world just like crazy chaos and mayhem and stuff? So aren't we kind of screwed from day one with that one? Because like, <laughs> well, isn't our ego always trying to make sense of the fact that ultimately good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. We are meaningless specks of dust in a vast universe. Uh, is that why we're so messed up, Aaron? If you could tell me that, that'd be helpful. Yeah, well, as as uh, self-aware, at least some of us, <laughs> self-aware meaning-making beings in the world, it's a hard you know job right so the ego makes up stories to survive that and again i would say that's like a perfectly natural situation whether your story is religion or afterlife or free choice as the existentialist would have it we're kind of creating a story to give us sense to this crazy world that we're, we're in if we didn't we probably would go crazy and many of us do and many people say if we're not going crazy we're oh, insane because yeah. we should be yeah. right yeah Crikey. But it's oh, also good because it keeps us adapted to the world. The ego's job is also like to adapt us to the world. So if that helps us be adaptive, that's great. If that's harmful to us or to somebody else in the process, it's not so good. So that sounds like an example of good schadenfreude then, at least in the sense of um, it's doing something useful to keep us sane and keep us going. If we can sort of develop these stories that there is a sense of right and wrong and justice and comeuppance and, and that that helps us cope with the mayhem a little bit, performing it, a good it, function. It can do, yeah. Before we go any further, I wanted to just ask you a thing. Uh, Freud, yeah, so you said at the start of this, you said like Freud has gone out of fashion, but you still think he's quite cool. Mm -hmm. is, is Freud generally see is the stuff freud said generally seen as still relevant or is he debated now or what a lot of what he said is not seen as relevant um but some basic concepts that people will be really familiar with like projection for example when you project something onto someone else that you can't accept about yourself mm. transference for example where you perceive somebody like your father or your mother and you respond to them like that even though they're not like that like a, a oh, boss you mean or when, a you, when you put your hand up in class and you call your teacher 
dad, that sort of thing. Something, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Or, I mean, there's a, th- a thousand examples, but some of these like really basic uh, insights that he had, even just the basic insight about how it matters, how much your upbringing was and what was going on in your upbringing and how that informs your current life and your relationships. I mean, a lot of that stuff is still really true. And someone like, so he had kind of ideas about the structure of how this stuff sits in our brain that we've kind of got rid of the idea that this is all sort of neat little units of ego and id and stuff but like a lot of the basic stuff he was talking about still obviously makes sense yes yeah procedurally you'd say it it makes sense it doesn't necessarily make sense on a content level yeah there's no super ego in your brain you're not going to find that just like this podcast procedurally makes sense if not actually in practice. (laughs) Right, climate change then. About time we talked about that. So we've uh, talked a bit about the three different types of schadenfreude, which, uh, again, do send me letters. I'd love to get letters, but crudely, the idea of sort of individual ego, group identity, which is still individual ego, and sort of justice and comeuppance, which is still, says Aaron, individual ego. But those three sort of distinct levels, right? Um, And before we talk about climate change and how how it might relate to those three different things just a bit of a kind of train of thought that i had when when preparing for talking to you right and like while i like to tell myself that i give a shit about climate change because i am a good person i'm morally righteous i'm altruistic and if everyone just hugs a tree and chills out everything will be fine actually there's a really large part of what has kept me doing this climate change stuff for like best part of 20 years now which is like i have identified some people as bad guys and I want them to fall on their ass and get their comeuppance. And there's a sort of the, the, almost like searching for schadenfreude and those little pockets of schadenfreude, like when Donald Trump gets voted out or uh, an oil company executive has to resign in tears or something like that. A large part of, of what sort of actually keeps me going, the fire of it, is wanting people to f- fail who I think are bad in climate change terms. And a large part of what makes me determine where they are, quote, bad people. It's not whether they actually are bad people. I've talked to people from oil companies. They're lovely individuals, right? But they don't, I, I perceive they don't have the same values as I do. They are not in my group, right? Um, and I may not like that, but it's true. And so I suppose, like, the, a starting question is, do you think that underneath a lot of the story we tell ourselves about why we are good people and bad people is actually this sort of sense of wanting some other group or some other people to fail. Have you found that in your work, in your life? So what is really interesting about the job of the ego is that it creates a story around itself about itself, right? So part of your ego's story is your commitment to issues around climate change, right? And in order to have that story, there has to be uh, an antihero or a villain. Otherwise, there's no, there's no story, right? So you you define yourself in contrast to some of these villains. And naturally, particularly on, well, on all those levels that you discussed before, there's going to be a kick. There's going to be a good feeling when something bad happens to the, to the antihero, right? It's not really technically Schadenfreude unless like it's thematically related. So you always want something to, you know, like the thing that was, uh, the thing that was great about Boris Johnson and the parties is that the guy who makes the rules about who can have a party has a party, right? So it's got to have that kind of, so they kind of have to get the the oil executive has to like, um, I don't know, get, 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 
I don't know, that's a bit violent, sort of like get, get blown up in a, a, on an oil rig in the ocean or something like that. There's got to be some kind of direct relationship to who they are. Right, right, right. Yeah, so you ha- your, your joy has to be in the damage in a thematic kind of a way. That, so they're just desserts are being served, right? It's a bit like irony. So there's, there's an element of sort of delicious irony about the whole thing as well. Yeah, like if Trump gets hit by a car, maybe you're happy that he's not around anymore, right? But like if he... Um, gets squashed by a giant tangerine that's that yeah see <laughs> yes. right then you've got right. then you've got the irony right <laughs> that gives it a little tinge of yeah extra your brain, your brain, your brain on climate, on climate. Okay, so let's talk a bit about Schaden, those three types of Schadenfreude and how they may or may not link to climate change, right? And just some examples and tell me if you've got other ones or you think these are bollocks, right? So the whole kind of individual identity stuff, right? Um, and we talked mm-hmm. a bit about kind of the self-esteem thing and, the, you know, people needing to keep on pushing in activism in climate change because they're also their own perception themselves. But what about, like... At the individual level, when someone like Trump, we want, you know, Trump annoys us, how much of it is us feeling in relation to him personally that sort of we're then transplanting onto all the other stuff? Like, I find Trump as a bloke just horrific. Like, at mm-hmm. everything he stands for, I think he's almost kind of a what's the word oleaginous you know i kind of find him fairly repellent and i i want to feel myself not inferior to him how much of that do you think drives a lot of kind of climate activism or just activism in general it's it's an interesting question because i was thinking particularly about schadenfreude in, in relation to him and what i can imagine outside of a tangerine falling on him is that you know his place is mar-a-lago it's in florida Florida's sinking, right? Mm. And that, that, that somehow, like, if, if, if that could, if that could happen to his estate, this would be like a perfect piece of Schadenfreude, which would answer the first and the second, the first and the third Schadenfreude that you presented. So on the ego level, like, this guy gets his, his, you know, all of his, all of his shit drowns, right? Mm, mm. And then on the cosmic justice level, we get this relief. Like, he got, got, like, that's a really, that's a really good thing. That's like the schadenfreude part of it. But this is a man who, who has wreaked destruction in, in so many variety of ways that to hope, to hope he doesn't succeed, I don't think is a particularly irrational person. I'm kind of like, you know, I'm a liberal progressive myself. So I've got like, you know, I've got a biased, biased angle, mm-hmm. but I would also mm-hmm. say it's not, it's not unnatural to see someone running across the world wreaking havoc to, to stop wreaking havoc so it's just a it's a global you know hope it's a big group hope that this this harm just stops but you could say that if it does us any favors um and you can see this happening a lot you know you could you saw this happen with uh, george floyd around black lives matter Mm. you see it happen with trump you see it happen with me too that like when the harvey weinstein rises up and the trump rises up and the minneapolis police rise up it provokes a part of us inside that wants to make the world better, identifies with that cause, and can yank us out of complacency in really important ways, I think. So from a develop, 
mental perspective, and again, this is why Trump is so problematic, you, you see a development of self-interest usually moves to family in family and friends interest, which then moves to usually like nation state interest or race or ethnic interest, which then moves to global interest and then which moves to kind of everything, right? So you can say that there is a developmental level in which one is identifying not just with themselves, their family and their nation state, but with the world as a whole. And that there is a satisfaction in seeing the, the, the stopping of the success of a movement that's at a lower de developmental level, which is just us, you know, America first, right? Like, mm -hmm. th and there's a relief there. I mean, there's a relief for the ego. There's also an identification with something bigger, like it's bigger than all of us. So we should take satisfaction when we see the world progress in a direction that's better for all of us. Okay. And so from the sort of group side of things, something that I reflect on a lot, and, and this comes up a lot in my, in my work and in general, is the how delighted some people are in the public when, uh, if, oh, I'm, I'm a climate change campaigner. Oh, right. Okay. I don't suppose, how did you get on that last holiday you were on then? I suppose you went on, you know, went by pogo stick, did you? Or the idea that, you know, the second people stand for something, they can, there are some people who will immediately try and shoot that down, you know, and say, oh, well, what, mm -hmm. you know, what about this, that, and the other? And there's a, the accusation of hypocrisy, I think, that can kind of be thrown at uh, environmental campaigners. Um, feels like it comes from the same place to me, that kind of group identity thing that the environmental campaigners represent a group of people to a group of other people, and that they would quite mm -hmm. like to see them exposed as uh, frauds, right? Yes. Yes. And what do you do about that if you are, is, is there anything you can do as a, if you are a group that is being, you know, people are sort of getting ready to have schadenfreude in your direction or set you up for it. Is there anything you can do about it? Or you just have to kind of roll with that? Well, let's, let's go back to the reason why they're doing it first, because I think that helps. So hypocrisy and schadenfreude are, are like very, they're like twin, twin sisters, right? Like there needs to be a degree of hypocr hypocrisy in the thing that happens in order to get the, the schadenfreude. Oh. And what you're doing when you are standing behind an ideal like climate change and someone is finding ways to call you a hypocrite is you're frightening them and they're finding a way to take the sharpness out of your attack because what you're saying is things need to change in a way that you may not be so comfortable with right your group or your individual ego however you want to look at it so the response is i need to water down your argument so that I don't have to be scared of you so much anymore, right? So if you're not so strong because you're flying to Spain on your holiday or whatever the charge of hypocrisy is, then I need to worry less about climate change. So I'd say from the activist perspective, you actually can't get hung up in the charge of hypocrisy. You should see the charge of hypocrisy as an effective response to the fear that you might be causing someone. Right. So yeah. it's a sign that you are winning or at least kind of cutting through with... People. It's a sign that you're provoking yeah. for sure, right? Because they wouldn't bother looking to diminish your argument. And then I guess the last one is around this idea of, of natural justice. And you, you talked a bit about it with Trump's 
golf course where, where he has, you know, is Florida house getting flooded if that happened and that, that being a sense of kind of natural justice. And at the heart of a lot of why a lot of people, including me, are sort of passionate about climate change is this idea of a sort of profound injustice happening where historically and also in the modern, in the modern age, there is people who have the power, people who have the money causing damage and loads of the people who don't have the money and don't have the power on the sharp end of it who can't adapt and Mm -hmm. if i was being totally totally honest when hurricane sandy hits the coast of america when was that a good few years ago wasn't it Mm. there was a little tiny bit of me was having a little bit of that sense of oh right well now maybe they'll notice right you know now Mm -hmm. maybe america will notice and i'm not proud of that i'm not sort of saying that is a thing i reveled in i certainly didn't put it on twitter or anything but Mm -hmm. like i felt a bit of kind of pleasure in in that that happening and i Mm -hmm. know that that was felt by a lot of other people in the movement who were who have for years have been saying well you don't care about deaths in pakistan but now maybe you'll pay attention right um and what is that as a force in sort of climate campaigning? Do you think it's a really good question because you're kind of saying if you if that if that force in a sense could be harnessed in some mm. kind of a way would would there be an effective an effective end somehow? Because what you're up against, I know this is slightly different, and you could probably talk to a different kind of psychologist about it. But what you're up against with climate change are two really difficult mountains when it comes to the human mind, right? So one of them is like the law of large numbers, right? So there's like, there's distance into the future, there's feeling helpless, like what can an individual do? It's like global, like how am I supposed to care, have an impact or every time I move in one direction, I'm told this is, you know, like that then something else happens and you know, like I, I started eating avocados and now avocados are sucking up all the water, you know, oh, you can yeah. feel really helpless, right? And then there's this issue that you're talking about more directly, which is about proximity. So people tend to care about stuff that's more proximate to them. So it's harder to care about something that's happening in Bangladesh than what's happening on Long Island if you live in New Jersey, right? So that's the challenge. And your satisfaction comes in that kind of global justice schadenfreude, which is, guess what, mate? It doesn't just happen in Bangladesh. It happens in New York City, too. And see, you turned a blind eye to it, and now look at what's happened yeah so in a sense the sentiment is probably in the right place what you do with that sentiment obviously is not gloat and not say i told you so and it takes a very highly developed person to be able to use that as an opportunity a learning opportunity for example rather than a kind of told you so opportunity and that's tough and i think it takes eloquence and communication skills and like people to go in there and be like you know, use that as an opportunity. Because if there's one thing, you have alluded to this as we've gone on, is there's one thing that we don't like ourselves, it is being on the wrong end of some schadenfreude, right? Like if yes. I if I were 20 years ago, the young guy overtaking the older guy, and I fell flat on my ass in the street having done so, um, I don't imagine... I would feel great about that. I don't imagine my ego would not be in a good state then. So like no. when, when you have been on the wrong end of a natural disaster, for example, that probably isn't a good time to be gloated at from a kind of psychological point of view. Right. So, so what do you do? You go, you go to, um, you go to Long Island, you go to Brooklyn, you, people want to build their houses in the same place. They want to 
move back into the wetlands that had been reclaimed from wetlands from whenever, you know, they want to reinstall the normal electricity grid. I mean, you, you know, these things much more than I do, but like, is the way in saying, okay, look, we've lost all of this coastline. We've lost all of this stuff. What do we need to be responsive to the reality of climate change and being responsible for what we're putting into the environment through this opportunity? rather than see it just doesn't happen to the people in Bangladesh and now you've lost your posh beach house in the Hamptons and ha ha. Right. So wrapping all of this up a bit, thank you for dealing with this rather tangential discussion with eloquence and wit. But wrapping this all up a bit is this idea that schadenfreude is just a natural kind of expression of how the brain works, right? It is, you can't help feeling it in the same way that we can't help having egos and kind of how that, how that works. But there are probably better and worse ways to react when you are experiencing it um, and just in daily life, maybe not in climate sort of terms, what, what advice would you give if you, the next time you're experiencing pleasure at someone's downfall? Is there anything, any little words you should be having with yourself, do you think? Yes. I mean, the first thing you should do is non-judgmentally notice it because it uh, emerged autonomously on its own. You have this thought that's maybe not the most uh, compassionate thought in the world. So you just gently acknowledge that you've had this thought and you would understand that the more schadenfreudic, I don't think it's an adjective, but the more schadenfreudic the thought that you have, the more you enjoy that thought, the the more subjectivity you're actually taking away from the person who experienced it. So in your very first example, the more you enjoy thinking about this guy falling down a hole, the less human he has to be to you for you to enjoy that because if he falls down a hole and gets eaten by a... Uh, a whole shark or whatever you called him before you, it's not very humane to enjoy that it could be a bear i don't mind but it could be a bear right but if you really want to kind of try and work on elevating yourself and this is particularly hard with people like trump and i'm not sure i'm i would suggest it <laughs> but um to f also try and find the compassionate side so the schadenfreude is an expression it's kind of the hateful aggressive side and it's like, if there were compassion here, how would I, how would I be feeling? You do a lot of work about anxiety, and I've, I loved your stuff. I mean, this is, we'll have to get you back another time to talk about social media and anxiety and stuff like that. But kind of how much of our own kind of anxieties about whether we're making a difference in climate change is to do with a lot of this stuff about kind of the ego that we have and whether that ego is being uh, satisfied in a more sort of day-to-day -day level by 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 winning in some sense well now we're getting into some very interesting territory about um about any kind of activism really or any kind of like major commitment to an idea right so we all we all do that um some of the time those things are compensations for ego deficits we would call so i haven't mm -hmm. quite dealt with my own Say I haven't quite dealt with uh, pulling this out of the air, but like I haven't dealt with my own goodness around a particular. I let somebody down, or I let myself down, or I didn't complete something sort of on a basic ego level. So I compensate for that not by buying a nice car and driving around in the, the narcissistic sense, but by publicly committing myself to a good deed, so I can tell my ego this great story. Right. Yeah, you would also say this is a good solution to your problem because lots of times the solutions to those problems look more like. Trump, right? So you're just running around the world creating distress and havoc everywhere. So at least the commitment is great. But for the individual, I always, well, I mean, I'm a psychotherapist, so I would say this, you can better commit to a, um, to any kind of an ideal also when you're addressing those personal issues. Otherwise that ideal takes the place of the personal work that, 
that that needs to be done, which means that sometimes it's not deployed in the best possible way. Sometimes it's not deployed with respect to others, um, and it doesn't solve a seeking issue in the in the person who's doing it. So, Aaron, how can people find out about you and what you've got going on? Well, you can check out my website, which is aaronbalek.com. I'm also on Twitter, um, at Dr. Aaron B. And if you're interested in applying things like Freudian ideas or psychoanalysis to contemporary phenomenon, I've got a book on that about social media called The Psychodynamics of Social Networking, which you'd be very welcome to check out. I can endorse. I, I did a lot of reading of Aaron's stuff about social media in preparation for this, and it is interesting stuff, and it will make you feel very differently about how to behave on social media. So I recommend it wholeheartedly. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. It was a great pleasure. Right, that was that episode of Your Brain on Climate. And thanks so much to the majestic Aaron Balick for coming on here and telling me all about Schadenfreude. I hope you enjoyed it. I know these episodes have been a bit all over the place in terms of timing. Basically, I've got loads of things on. I try and do them when I can do them. I recorded this chat with Aaron back in March, and it's taken me this long to get around to editing it. There will be more episodes. This podcast will live. You just might have to bear with it being a bit intermittent until I earn so much money from it that I can do it all the time which, let's face it, isn't happening because I don't have a Patreon set up or anything yet. Drop me a note if you would support such a thing. Anyway, um, you can get in touch with me. Tell me what you thought of the show. Hello at yourbrainonclimate.com. Follow me on Twitter at brainclimate. Please do spread the word. If you do nothing else, pop onto iTunes, give it a little five-star rating if you liked it, and write a review with your hands, particularly for new podcasts that are trying to build an audience like this. It makes a massive, massive difference. So please do that. I will be back soonish within the next few weeks hopefully with more of this stuff if there's something in the back catalogue you'd like the look of go and check that out and until then hope you look after yourself please don't wish ill upon anyone that doesn't really really deserve it but don't necessarily beat yourself up if they do fall flat on their face in a shark pond okay bye <laughs> <laughs>